a family unit, which includes more than blood relatives, as we'll see, is generally about 10 to 15 people at any given time, although it can expand marvelously beyond that. But you have about 10 or 15 people that you normally connect with on a weekly basis, people that you have influence with and that also might speak into your life in reverse. Um, If they were in trouble, they might be calling you. If they needed advice, they would maybe look to you. If you wanted advice, you might even look to them. You have regular, and so I'm just trying to define oikos so you can shoot at the target, okay? And that is, who do you connect with on a regular basis? Who are you in in a constant fellowship with? And it may not be the kind of koinonia fellowship that the Bible talks about where you share everything in common, but it are those people that you regularly connect with, and let's define it weekly. Is that all right? About every seven days. You and I both have friends, I'm sure. At least I hope you do. I know I have them that if you don't see them for a few years and you sit down with them, it's like you were with them yesterday. In fact, yesterday, uh, Janine and I traveled to San Bernardino and attended the memorial service for Pastor Steve Fox, 61 years old, excellent uh, man of God, just a tremendous influence. He is the one that would move us to Kenya, if you will. Uh, Pastor Steve Fox and the Inland Christian Center there in Colton started the work in back in the 50s in Africa. And uh, now they have still... Over a hundred churches in Kenya, Tanzania as well, and um, you know they have probably you probably couldn't count the number of pastors they've trained through their Bible college in Kenya, in Nairobi. But he passed away, and we were at his service yesterday, and it was a huge reunion of people I've known over the years, ministers, old and young, and had guys walk up to me and say, "I know the face, but I can't remember your name." And so we would reintroduce and we reconnect. And one of, the, one of the families we saw there was uh, Bill and Carrie Hemsley. And a lot of you know Bill and Carrie. They used to be part of the church here. Now they live in Yukaipa, and he is the uh, city. Uh, he's a director of public works for the city of Yukaipa now. And, and uh, we said, hey, we're going to grab some lunch on the way home. And say, hey, well, so are we. Where do you want to meet? And we picked a restaurant in Redlands and, Redlands, and we got there, and it was closed. And so he said, oh, well, I got a great recommendation for one a couple blocks over. It's a Thai place. And I said, well, I've got a tie on, so uh, let's go there. And we went over there, and it was closed. And uh, so we shouted between the windows of our cars, do you know where Panera is? Panera Bread. You ever been to Panera Bread? No? You're missing out. Anyway, so I said, I know where that's at. Let's go. And so we got walked in and said, at least we didn't get struck out. We got two, but not three. As we sat and ate together, it was simple fellowship, just kind of talking and yakking. And then we decided to figure out how long it had been since we'd really seen each other. What was it, Janina, do you remember? It was more than four years. But it felt like yesterday. Uh, Oh, yeah, it was in 2003. Yeah, yeah, when we had the fires. I said, the last time I think I saw you, and it was only for a few seconds, when I had my van stuffed full of my household goods, and I parked it at your house escaping a fire and then we got in our other cars and went off to as we all did looking for a hotel to stay in for a week and uh, I wasn't much fellowship on that day it was just sort of like where can I stick this van load of worldly goods and uh, then we'll be out of your hair so it was a parking lot four or five years we hadn't been together but when we sat and talked we realized now they're family 
And it's the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ that holds us together in that fashion. Now, I would not put them in my oikos immediately because I don't have weekly and regular contact with these folks. But you have friends like that too. And these are our friends. They're good. They're acquaintances. But I'm talking about those that you have influence with on a weekly basis. And uh, weekly is spelled with two E's in the middle. Not E-A. Thank you. In Philippians, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 16, we're looking at the story of the Philippian jailer. <clears throat> uh, the boys have been thrown into prison, Paul and Silas. And in verse 25, it says, At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. By the way, I have in the margin of my Bible, you might want to put, this is my all-original two-man cell meeting. <laughs> and they had a few they were reaching out to right there in the prison. Okay. I know it's a bad joke, but it still works. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. There's another message there about worship, isn't there? You want to get the chains off? Do a little worshiping. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, that sounds a little radical, but, you know, if you're a Roman soldier and your charges get away, it's your life for theirs. So he was going to perform his own service. Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your what? Oikos. You and your, say it with me, oikos. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This would be oikia, house. All that were in his oikia. You might think of fashioning your home from Ikea. (laughs) But it's an oikia furnished by Ikea. The oikia... They ministered the word of the Lord to everybody in the oikia, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, that is the jailer took Paul and Silas, washed their stripes from their beatings earlier, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his oikia, his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his oikas, all of his surrounding family members. If we back up in this same chapter to verse 11. Sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Let me give you a little history so you understand this. They're in the city of Philippi, uh, uh, but there's no synagogue. There's a rule about synagogues. You have to have X amount of men to form a synagogue. Evidently, there was no synagogue because Paul's practice was to go to the synagogue and teach about Jesus. There was no synagogue. There weren't enough Jewish men hanging together to build a synagogue. And it was a group of men, not a building. But there wasn't one. So he said, where's prayer taking place? Well, prayer's out by the riverside. The gals are in charge. So he went out there. It's an interesting point. 
Verse 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her oikos were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my oikia and stay. So she persuaded us. The simple part of this message today is to take a giant nail and set it in place and begin to drive it in slowly and straightly. You know, we've been concerned with biblical worldview and certain, you know, formations of our mindsets biblically over the last number of weeks, and it'll probably last the rest of the year. But this is a mindset that needs, I, I told Pastor Rob, he's going to be preaching next weekend, and he's going to pick this up and do part two, and we're going to carry it on for a number of weeks, because what I want to do is take the nail, set it there, and just drive it in with a sledgehammer, one quick bang, and try and change all of our minds instantaneously in one service. And then I thought, how realistic is that? It's not very realistic. I'd probably bend the nail. So we want to set the nail and begin to tap it in ever so firmly, but we want it to be fastened in correctly. And I'm after a mindset here that talks to us about our households, talks to us about our oikos, talks to us about our influence and the people around us who are already near to us. I believe that in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's much easier to do it with people you know. That it's more warm, it's more friendly, it's front drawer, it's, it's uh, easier to say to somebody, uh, you remember the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? It's true. And when you have somebody in your oikos circle, in your household circle, that needs to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, their Redeemer, their Rescuer, as we sang this morning. I called, you answered, you came to my rescue. There are a lot of people that need rescuing today from their daily uh, problems, their issues, the, the hard situations they may be facing. And a lot of it is because they don't know Christ yet. But even those who know Christ still need the same comfort and level of security that comes from their relationship with Jesus Christ. You have an oikos of people that God has put around you already that are warm to you. They know you. They like you. You have regular weekly interchange. Some of them are on your jobs. Some of them are where you work. Some of them are actually your family members that uh, need a touch from God. And I believe that the Lord is leading us to a place to show us in His Word that He has always dealt with groups of household units all the way through the Bible. Now, I have 20 points in this message right here. These are 20 passages of Scripture that back up this particular principle in the Scriptures. It's there. But I also know that you and I are facing a mindset that has been given to us for about 1,700 years. So to change that in one day would be pretty tough, wouldn't it? Matter of fact, you could end up a heretic if you come against the status quo. You could be seen as a little radical or loony. And uh, I don't mind being radical, but I'd rather not be loony. <laughs> I mean, the Canadians are the loons. Let's leave it there. <clears throat> it's on their money. What can you say? Back up to Acts chapter 10. So what I'm doing is I'm just showing you passages 
that you've actually read many times. But you have a paradigm. I have a paradigm. We have a way of looking at things. You know, the story's told about a guy lost in the forest. And he's trying to look through the thick of the trees and he can't really figure out where he is. Now, he could just go faster and maybe get lost quicker or go deeper into the forest, but he really wants to get out. But he has his paradigm is limited by what's surrounding him. And so what he has to do is change his view in order to get done what he wants to get done. The best way to do that, you might do the same thing if you could, is climb a tree. You get up to the top of the tree and you change your view. You go, oh, the, it's, it's that way. You know, and you would get your bearings. You need a paradigm shift to be able to say, which way is this thing going? The paradigm for the church for the last 1,700 years has been, and I say that because uh, it was about 400 years after, 300 to 400 years after this book was assembled for us by God, that a Roman ruler said, we're going to put the church in buildings. For the first 400 years, the church had no buildings to meet in. And so we have grown up with a paradigm that says, this is church. This building we're in is church. What I would like to do to change your paradigm would say, close your eyes, wiggle your nose, snap your fingers, say the magic word, whatever it is that would work for you, and imagine with me that tomorrow morning when we wake up, every church building in America has disappeared, vanished. There's empty property everywhere. Some of you I know want to go right into real estate, and that's not what I'm talking about. You say, whoa, empty property, let's go. Um, we were driving through Redlands. In fact, we were in that where we were doing lunch yesterday <coughs> with our not Oikos friends. <laughs> they used to be in our Oikos, now they're not. And if you've been through Redlands, or if you drive across Orange Boulevard and you start going uh, deeper into Redlands, you come just after that little angle in the street. It changes names. Somebody know the name of the street there? Colton, Colton changes into Colton. And about a block up there, there are four churches on the corner. It's a beautiful corner. Have you ever been through there? Big brick buildings, magnificent church structures. And, and uh, I love the story about the time when those four churches got together and had the city block off the intersection on a Sunday. And all four churches got those little two-foot uh, pool, doughboy pools, and set them up and filled them in the four street endings. And all four churches came out and had baptisms at the same time. And they had chairs set up in the streets, and they just all worshiped together. And I thought, boy, they should have figured that out on that day just to keep it going. But we come out of our structures and we call our structures churches. And our mind tells us that if we're going to be part of the church, then we have to be part of the building. And I'm not sure on this. You can look it up. I believe it was Churchill who said, we design our buildings and then our buildings define us. We design our buildings and then our buildings define us. Once we build a building and say that's the church, then we have to do a lot to keep the building in place. We clean the carpets, we get the chairs, we, we set them up very differently. If you went to that corner I just mentioned and went through the Fort of Churches, you'd see similar items in those buildings, but each one of them would have a different view or look about their worship style or their furnishings or something. But we spend a lot of time propping up the buildings so that we can have church. What I want to do is take us back into the first 400 years of the church and say, watch when you read the scriptures where they're meeting. And you'll find out that they were in oikos meetings. They were in household meetings. They were in groups 
like we organize with ourselves, our lighthouses, very similar to that. But we actually organize that way when we organize away from the building to do it. They had no building to organize away from. They would worship in homes. If you look at Acts chapter 20, and I know I just took you to 10, we'll come right back. Uh, We've got Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 20 talking to the Ephesian elders on the beach. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, and he begins to talk uh, with them. You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly in the temple, in the temple courts. I taught you publicly and what? From house to house, from oikia to oikia, from oikos to oikos, from household group to household group, from family to family. This is how Paul did his ministry. It was among household units. Acts chapter 10. We'll go back there. We've got two visions that happen in this chapter. Cornelius, in verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. This guy's in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. He's a centurion. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, all his oikos, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clear in a vision, an angel coming to him saying, Cornelius, what? He answers, your prayers and your alms are heard. Send men to Joppa, verse 5. Find Simon, whose surname is Peter. Verse 9, Peter's in Joppa having another vision. The sheet is lowered. Rise, kill, and eat. I'm not going to read the whole thing because you can get it on your own. Uh, Rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. But God concludes this vision after three exposures of the same illustration of the sheet lord with unclean animals in it said don't call unclean what i have called clean as the vision stops the door knocks the guys are there from cornelius's house it took them more than a day to get there he answers the door and, and say we're looking for uh simon peter an angel sent us cornelius sent us from his oikos we're part of his oikos we came to get him Peter says, what do you want? And they said, this is the deal. He said, okay, stay in the night. We'll go tomorrow. They take the day the next day and they go back. And they arrive at Cornelius' house in verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. This is his oikos. These are the people that know Cornelius and Cornelius knows. It's his family members, it's his blood relatives who are very important to him. Because he's a seeking God man. And this is a God moment. This is a vision moment. This is a supernatural event. And he has called immediately into himself. He said, Peter's going to be here. Let's get together. His family members are there and his friends. If you study, I hope you do, uh, some of the background languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, you'll find that the word friends here is philos. There are three words for love in the New Testament. Agape love, that's God's unconditional love. Uh, Phileo, which is brotherly love. And eros, which is natural, physical love. And he says he's called together his oikos, his family and his philos, his friends. Now, these are not just acquaintances. Let me give you the definition a little further. Philos is a Greek word that is an adjective used as a noun. 
You can think about that. A loved one, affectionate friend, a beloved one. They are connected by a love of emotion and friendship. You know, your acquaintances, you don't have an emotional connection with. You just know them by name. You know them by their work. You see them out in public, uh, whatever the case may be. But you've not emotionally connected to them. Your friends, your philos, are those that you have an emotional connection with. You love them. They love you. Philos has a congeniality about it. It means that there's a same nature, a similar disposition, similar tastes. When you're together, you exist harmoniously. It is pleasant, agreeably suited to one's nature, tastes, or outlook. Those are the kind of people we attract as friends, isn't it? We get along with them. It's a good time when we're together. They're there together. As Peter's coming in, Cornelius meets him, falls on his face, he gets him up, he starts the whole process. Why would you bring me? God gave me a vision. He told me you were going to tell us everything we needed to do. And uh, so uh, Peter says, I get it now that you're the sheet and you're the unclean Gentiles. We're not even supposed to be in your house. I brought this half a dozen Jews with me uh, from Joppa, and they're along. And we're all feeling a little uncomfortable about being in the home of a Gentile. It's not our practice. But God has shown me. Not to not say you're unclean anymore. He's evidently got something going. So, in verse 34, Peter opens his mouth and says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. Now, you're going to see a brief presentation of the gospel right here. And if you ever want to know about how to present the gospel to other people, here's a real quick snapshot. Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and who, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, Jesus, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Great presentation of the gospel, just a few words. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. That These are the ones that came with Peter. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Just to make mention of it, this young man sitting right here is named Doug Diesman. And he's going to be baptized today at 1 o'clock as a connection to the Thiessen Cell Group. And uh, I'm looking forward to that because I'm going to be there. Once you believe, you get baptized. Who's in this group? This is a supernatural moment. This is a historical church history moment. This is when God brings the Gentiles into the church. First, it's Acts chapter 2 and the upper room. 120, all Jews. 
receive the Messiah's gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God says, now we're going to take it to the nations, the other nations of the world. And here the Gentiles receive the same baptism of the Holy Spirit. Endorsed by God himself that they are now to be part of the body of Christ. Uh, Peter commands that they also be baptized because that was the word of the Lord to them. And Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved and the gifts will come to you and to your family and to as many as are far off. God is dealing with an oikos here. Cornelius' family and friends. They're not in a building that's called a church. They become the church in an instant. By faith in Jesus Christ and the confirmation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then baptism in water, they are part of the body of Christ. Now, go back with me for a moment and let me tap on the nail just a moment further and say, okay, all the buildings are gone. You and I have just come to Christ. He's filled us with His Holy Spirit. We were all there with Doug. We got baptized today. And we're baptized into, into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, according to the Scriptures. And now we look at each other and say, what are we going to do next? See, our paradigm for 1,700 years is, okay, you need to go to church. You need to attend a building. You need to be in the services that are arranged. You need to go through the new believers class and the discipleship process that we have over there at the building. We built it for that. Come there and do that. But what if there were no buildings? What if there were no structures, physical structures to attend to? We just need to come to your house. We need to gather your oikos. And this is what, when you read the Bible, you'll see it from cover to cover. But because we were birthed into a culture that says it differently, we've seen it differently for 1,700 years. I I expect you to look at me with blank stares, and that's fine. You nobody's shouting, Amen! That's right! I knew that! No, I didn't know that. It's a shift. I need to climb the tree and get a new view. We're here this morning. Why? Because we've been taught to come here. And I'm not trying to teach you not to come here. You know, that's not the point. Don't see this backwards. We're a cell church, and we believe that the cell is the church, but the church is more than a cell. My body, the scriptures teach, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that make me the church? No, it makes me a part of the church, because he's the head and I'm part of the body. But I can be an individual temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in and he wants to live his life and the life of Christ out through me but standing all by myself on a corner I can't say hi I'm the church because the church is more than me right and my my contention or my thesis to you if you will this morning is that if we were in that condition there were no buildings to attend to it does not mean that God would be unorganized about his body it's connected. We have so many passages in the Scripture that says everything works better when it's connected. And there is a structure in the Scriptures that is portrayed to us, but it's not a physical structure. It's an organizational structure that is headed by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and elders and deacons. And this is the government of God in the New Testament. And we would organize as they did in the New Testament. Imagine with me just Ephesus. Timothy's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. James, the brother of Jesus, is the, is the apostle over the church in Jerusalem. And they have no buildings. But in Ephesus, there's more than 35,000 believers. How do you organize the church? You do it biblically. 
You're organized by oikos, by households, by tribes, by families, by units of people who are already connected and who have come to the Lord in mass because somebody in their family got saved. The Philippian jailer got saved and his whole house hears the message. Cornelius gets a vision from God and his whole family and his oikos, those who are connected to his family unit, are also come to the Lord. It's not a guarantee that if one person in family gets saved, that's not what the Bible is saying. Everybody has to be an individual believer in Jesus Christ. I mentioned Steve Fox earlier, and Steve was preaching in South Africa in a Muslim area, doing an evangelistic outreach with a church there. And the pastor, they had two big tents, one for the meeting and one for everything else they were doing on the side of the meeting. They used this other small tent for prayer before the meetings would start. He took Steve before the the meeting, and of course Steve's out of his element. He's in South Africa. He's a he was going to preach. I mean, Steve's basically a contractor saved, and uh, he put he put the trusses in this building for us years ago. His crew came up from San Bernardino and set the trusses on this building. Uh, he's a rough guy, but he's a gentle, loving man as well. So here he is in South Africa, and the pastor there grabs him and takes him into this other tent and says, here's what we're going to do before the meeting starts. We're going to put you in the middle of the tent, and then all my people are going to gather around you, and we are just going to pray in the Spirit, and we're going to lay hands on you, and we're going to pray for you to go out there. And all we want you to do when you go out there to begin preaching is we just want you to go out there and do miracles. (laughs) Steve said, "Let let me go over this with you one more time. You're going to pray for me, and then you want me to go out there and do miracles. He said, that's right, Pastor Steve, because it's not about you. It's about the anointing of God. It's about the Spirit of God. It's about the fact that God loves these Muslim people, and we're going to give them the best news they've ever had. Now, here's what you're going to do. Go out there and preach whatever you want. Just preach whatever you want. It's dark. You can't use the Bible. You don't have any notes. You just got to preach what God gives you. Preach. But preach Jesus. And when you're done preaching Jesus... Tell them we're going to lay hands on every one of them and pray for them. Every one of them. Thousands. Our team and you will stay here all night if we have to. Because they all want to be prayed for. They all want to be touched by Jesus. He says, and here's what we're going to be praying for in this tent right now. is We're going to pray that when we lay hands on those people, that the ones who are sick and diseased and cancerous or whatever are going to get miracles from God. Because we know this. One miracle, one healing, leads to 65 to 80 people getting saved in the Muslim country. Because that person will turn around and begin to tell their family, aunts, uncles, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, everybody is going to see the miracle. And they're going to understand something a Muslim doesn't understand, and that is that there's a loving God who cares for their soul. It's not about the strictness and stuff they've been taught Learn. They've never heard of a loving Jesus. And when they see that God loves a person enough to move on their body and heal them, it floods into the oikos. He says, so Steve, that's what we're praying for. He said, I went out, I preached whatever I wanted, promised them we were going to pray. He said, and we were there all night just praying for people. And miracles happened and oikoses got saved. See, there's a mindset that we've been taught. We go after them one at a time. Just one person come to Jesus. We've, we've held entire meetings where we said, if just one person comes to Jesus, it's worth it. So we need, to, we need to shift our mindset. We need to climb the tree. We need a new view. We need a biblical pattern to follow, not just what we were stuffed into. 
when we were born in our culture. Imagine if we started thinking that every person we led to Christ flooded the oikos. Then the targets would get bigger. The love would come easier. And I'm not asking you to tell the checker in the line and lead them to Jesus in the 30 seconds as you're checking out. We talk about that from time to time, but that's a hard scenario to witness for Christ in. I mean, all you have time to do is say, by the way, your name tag, uh, Linda, there, Linda on your name tag, I see. Uh, Linda, it says have a nice day, but it doesn't look like you're having one. I'm a Christian. I'm going to be checking out just in a few minutes. I'll be gone, but I, I want to pray for you today. How can I pray for you? Now, you can go in the parking lot and begin to pray that God will do a miracle in Linda's life, and she'll put the one and two together and make something out of it. But you really don't have time to form a relationship, get her into your oikos, <laughs> and, and then lead her to Jesus in that moment. But if you care enough, and if every time you go back, you go through Linda's line, and you never check out unless you're in her line, she's going to get used to you after a while. And at some point, she's going to say, you're the one who always comes through here caring about me. Well, let me tell you what's going on in my life. She grabs her little clothes sign, and she puts it at the end of the deal. She says, we're going to stand here for just a few minutes because I need to unload. Now they're moving into your oikos, and God will place people in your oikos so that you can warmly, genuinely share Christ with them. The words of the Bible, and when I say the words, I'm talking about Hebrew and Greek. And I'm not a Hebrew and Greek scholar. I just have all the tools to find it out and then get the things that teach me how to say them. I even have one Bible program that I click on the word, it'll pronounce it for me. (laughs) I mean, that's really helpful. It's always fun to take the program and jam it into one of those uh, uh, genealogy passages and say, read this. <laughs> you try and read it, computer, and it'll, it'll hack its way through there and talk about all the Hashumaniapias and all those other people. But in the Hebrew and in the Greek, and we've taken the Bible and translated it all into Greek. It's called the Greek Septuagint. And so you can study the whole thing in Greek even though the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And these words I want to share with you, one is tribe. After I share this with you, I'm going to give you a really negative example. Would you like that? Really negative example from Scripture. The first word is pronounced fule. It's the word for tribe. It's, uh, it can be represent a nation or people, but most often in the Old Testament, you're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Fule. The second word is patria, or patria, if you will. It means this, that it's a family unit. Now, the family lineage runs back to one uh, progenitor. Their ancestry comes from one person, not the whole Tribe after the tribe is established, we'll say the tribe of Judah, after Judah had his family, and then the other guys started having their families, you could follow these family lines back to the one who started it. So you have the word patria. We could see it easily with paternal, right, in our language. Patriarch, patria. The third word is the word we've used already today, oikos, a household. Any inhabited house. It can represent the domicile, or the place, it can even represent in scriptures the house of God. When God talks about his house, he's talking about a whole nation called Israel. They are my house. I live in and with them. So, these words form a series of words that give us insight into the scripture. Uh, that show us that God has always dealt with a nation we know as Israel. 
Now he's outside the boundaries of Israel dealing with the whole world. He's included the Gentiles in his family. But he deals with the whole church now. But still, as he deals with the church, he deals with it by breaking it down in similar process, tribes, clans, families, oikoses. Turn with me to Joshua 7 for a real negative illustration. It's, it's only negative because of what's happening here. It's kind of a difficult passage, not to understand, but just to see it happen. It's, it's the chapter where we have what's called the defeat at Ai, right? The children of Israel coming into the promised land. They're coming into all that God said they could have. This is your land. Go in and take it. First stop? Well, the first stop was at the Gilgal and recircumcising the whole nation. After that, second stop was Jericho. They get to Jericho and they defeat Jericho. And on the heels of this great success, they said, now let's go up to Ai and kick some tail up there. Sorry, that's on my mind because Pastor Steve Fox's, Fox's email address was tailkicker at AOL.com. It's just kind of his persona. His daughter Rachel is little kicker <laughs> at AOL.com if you want to send Rachel an email. But they're just that kind of, you know, let's go get them. Let's get out to the fringes of Christianity and push it further. And Anyway, Steve would always say, let's go kick some tail. So the children of Israel say, well, this is easy. We just go and God drops the walls and we take over whole cities. Let's go up to Ai. And they go up to Ai and they get their tails kicked. You can read that here. It says it in different words. It's a Hebrew for tail kicker. I know. Sorry. They get beat up. They run back. And they cry out to God and they say, God, why are why did we get beat up like this? We're supposed to be taking control, and we got B. What's the deal? Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. See the exclamation point? Get up. I know how God, I'd like to get his tone of voice sometime and be able to imitate his voice. I can't do that, but certainly there's an exclamation point. Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Now, back up to Jericho, right? They went into Jericho. They were supposed to wipe out the city and burn the whole thing, keep nothing for themselves. That was the command of God. That was the covenant commandment from God. Don't keep anything. Now God's saying there's sin in the camp, if you will. Therefore, the children of Israel, verse 12, could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your fule, your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, patria. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by what? Oikos. And then it goes further, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. This is just a foundational passage for us to 
tap the nail in a little further and say, this is my biblical view, is that God deals with people by nation, then by tribe, then by family unit, and then by oikos, finally down to me as an individual. Only God can do this. He's, you know, he's transcendent, and yet he's eminent. He's overall, but he's very personal. Transcendent and eminent, close to me, close to you. And this is how God dices up a nation that he's bringing into their promised land. Bring the whole nation. It was assumed the nation was involved. They weren't dealing with any other nations in the world. It was just the nation of Israel. Bring the whole nation, and I will begin to select by tribe, by family, and then by household. In verse 17, it says, or 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. I mean, taken, I mean, it was selected, right? He brought the clan of Judah and took the family of the Zerites. He brought the family of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of, etc., etc., of the tribe, was taken. So they got God sorted out all the way down to, but he was dealing with a nation. How does he deal with a nation, biblically? Tribes, clans and families, oikos. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. If you want to make good doctrine, you find it in the Old and you prove it in the New. It works that way. If you can't get it done that way, then you might be in an errant doctrinal position. Find it in the Old, it's supported in the New. There's a saying that says the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. They support one another. It's God's Word. Now again, what am I doing this morning? This group here that I'm saying I'm handing us a nail and I'm tapping it in saying, trying to change the way we think. Trying to land something in our hearts and our spirit that says it's not about buildings. It's about family units. It's about oikos. I gave you three of 20. You know what's coming next? 17 more. They're going to go real fast. So you might want to write them down or get it off the recording or whatever. But let me just show you as the things I've listed. This is not exhaustive. It was kind of exhausting. It wasn't exhaustive. Number four. In Genesis 7, verse 1, in Hebrews eleven seven, you find it recorded that God dealt with Noah and saved what? He and his household, his family. By doing that, you and I are descendants thereof, aren't we? I mean, that's a biblical view. Everything else was wiped out. The only family that remained was Noah and his family. Therefore, all of us are descendants of these guys. God saved the world by saving a family unit. In number five, Abraham in Genesis eighteen nineteen, it says that God's talking to him as he's as they're walking down, and God's heading for Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. And he says in his conversation in the scripture, he says, "Shall I hide this from Abraham? He's my friend. I can't hide what I'm going to do from Abraham. 
we talk about stuff like this. He says, and besides, I know him. And he is going to raise up his oikos, his household, his family unit. And he's going to command them to keep my covenant. And he's going to become great in the nations. He's going to be the leader of nations. And so I'm, I'm not going to hide my heart from him. Because he's going to lead an oikos. He's going to lead a patria. He's going to form a foule. Okay? In Genesis 14, 14, you'll find that Abraham also had... This is where your oikos gets a little bigger. He had 318 trained servants who were born in his house. Now that is a midwifery service. All of them born in his house. They were born into his oikos. He trained all of them. When Lot was in trouble and needed to get out, he was, he was uh, taken captive, said Abraham rose up and got his 318 trained servants who were born and trained in his house, and they went and defeated the enemies and took Lot back. How did he do it? With more than 300 people in his oikos. Number six, Joseph sold into slavery, is in Egypt, he's second to Pharaoh, and down from Israel comes the boys, right, the brothers, and eventually comes dad. And what's dad's name? Jacob. Jacob comes to Egypt and literally fulfills the vision of bowing in front of his son. And it says that Jacob feeds Israel. Uh, Excuse me, Joseph feeds Israel or feeds Jacob. By God putting Joseph in this position... He intervenes to feed a nation, an oikos, a family unit, a clan, a foule, called Jacob, that we know becomes the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He feeds his brothers and his family unit. He's taking care of them. This saves the entire nation. God deals with the nation by dealing with families. Powerful stuff. Okay? In all of this, I've never seen them in the building yet. Okay, I'm not against buildings. I think we need them. Um, I'm just wanting to shake our belief systems a little bit. Exodus 12, they're coming out of bondage in Egypt later. We're going to celebrate the first Passover. God says, select a lamb, one per oikos, one per family unit. Count and see how many people are going to be at the meal in your household and make sure that there's nothing left over. If the lamb is too big, then invite the next oikos to eat with you so that there's nothing left over in the morning. I'm I'm looking at biblical principle here. God's dealing with oikos, even in establishing the Passover. Number eight, Joshua, when they went into Jericho, or he sent in the spies... Who did they meet and talk with? Rahab, the harlot. She says, since I've hidden you and I've been your friend, you have to spare me and my oikos. They say to her, everybody that's inside this oikia, inside your dwelling place, when we come to destroy the city, will be saved. But if anybody is outside of it, we're not guaranteeing that. That blood's on their own head. 
When you back up into the Passover, what did God say? Everybody in the house, blood on the doorposts and the lentil. And when the death angel passes by, if there's blood on the oikia, protecting the oikos inside, then no one will die. But if anybody's outside of it, they're in trouble. Death to the firstborn will happen. No protection. They tell Rahab, everybody inside will be saved alive. They are an interesting to me. Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. <laughs> God has plans in dealing with families. I already gave you number nine. That was for me on my list. That was the defeated Ai in the Valley of Achor and the sin of Achan. Number ten is just a fun one. Proverbs thirty-one. What is Proverbs thirty-one? Come on, ladies, you know what's in there. It's that virtuous woman thing. Right? I'd say thing because the Bible says if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. I got a good thing. I got a great thing. And it's Valentine's Day, and I better not forget. Amen. Ladies, you know you're supposed to put a sign in the yard yesterday. It says it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. We need that. <laughs> I mean, we'll try our best to fulfill it, but you just have to remind us when it happens. Anniversaries help too, if you, for some. This is just a fun one. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman who we esteem highly, right? Verse 15 says this, She also rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portion for her maidservants. We are part of her oikos. Her maidservant is part of the oikos. Verse 27 says, She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. But my favorite today is verse 21. Because it says, She's not afraid of snow. (laughs) For her oikos. She's not afraid of snow. Amen. That's good where we live. We see the virtuous woman as someone to be esteemed and honored. And what's she concerned with? Her oikos. I know I'm beating this thing into the ground. But I am wanting to get somewhere in the church life, the family of God life, that says we're going to penetrate our community. And wherever God sends us in the world, we're going to know how to strategically and biblically conquer. One of the greatest losses in mission work around the world Think of it. We, bring a, we, we grab a guy out of Kenya. We put him in Bible college. Maybe we even bring him to the States. And we train him in the biblical ways. And we teach him theology. And we get him a degree. And, and we go back. And the first thing he does, because we've ingrained to him our paradigm of church, is he spends the first most fruitful four to five years of his ministry life trying to gather enough cinder blocks and metal roofing to build a church in Africa. It's like building an ark. Everybody around him is going, what are you doing? We don't get it. Well, this is a church. He defines, he, he, he doesn't have much resources, so his building is going to be small. He designs it like he sees ours, but on a diminutive scale because of his resources. He wears himself out physically, mentally, and spiritually in five years. He's got a little building of blocks and some wood structures for benches. And he's got a handful of people he finally got to know Jesus, and they're inside, and now their building defines them. 
and the village is not hearing the good news. What we need to do is say, how do you guys do business in your village? So, well, when we have city meetings or group meetings or village meetings, we just go out under the big tree. I mean, because that's in case it rains. We've got a tree. That's where we meet. Well, then you ought to go out there and have church. Paul comes into Philippi and he says, this is a prominent city. Oh, there's no synagogue. Where are they holding the prayer meeting? Down at the riverbank. Well, I'm going down the riverbank because that's where the oikoses are. And we're going to tell Lydia and her family, and they're all going to get baptized. And boy, we've got a church in Philippi now, don't we? But nobody built a building. You want to see the practical application that goes in my head? Let me show you this. It snowed. I don't know how much money we spent to plow this lot so that we could be open for church. But none of you could get out of your driveways to come. <laughs> right? And it was nice and flat and smooth and melted off and black, but the drive-in was narrow and full of danger, and so some of us couldn't even get out onto the highway. And I thought, hmm, what if we, as a church body, this is where I get way out there and think of things in the future, okay? What if we, as a church body, said, why don't we take the same bundle of bucks that we put together for snow plowing, and, I don't know, one of us get a tractor. That would be nice, too, but... What if we said to the plow guy, oh, no, don't plow this. This is meaningless. We're not about the building. We need you to go to this address, this address, this address, and this address, because we've got four or five cell groups that if we can get them plowed out, we'll have church no problem. And we'd get you plowed out. Amen. <laughs> yeah, you like that. <laughs> I like that. I'm a, I'm a cell leader now, baby. Come on. Bring on the snow plow. Amen. I'll be the one in my neighborhood. <laughs> Why not? Okay, am I getting out of the box for you a little bit? Saying it could work. I mean, it's the same resources applied in a different fashion that's following the biblical pattern of moving inside oikos. Run to the end. When Jesus sent out missionaries, two by two ahead of himself, he said, whatever oikos greets you and welcomes you into their oikia, let your peace rest upon the place. If they don't receive you and you can't find a house that's worthy, then just move on or in some cases shake the dust off your feet and leave. But he told them what you're looking for is a house of honor, a house of faith, a house of welcome, an oikia that's got a good oikos inside of it. Stay with them as long as they'll have you and tell them about the kingdom of God. It's Matthew chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Acts chapter 2, 46, it says in the very beginning... So that the believers were happy and they were uh, breaking bread from house to house. They were meeting daily in the temple and meeting house to house, eating their meals with singleness of heart, and they were happy. And it says that God was adding to the church daily those who should be saved. Wow. I gave you Acts 20.20 with Paul and the Ephesian elders. That's number 13. Number 14 is Acts chapter 18. Paul's in um, preaching in the temple. This is, I like this. This is so good. This is changing my mind. This is changing my thoughts. Paul, it says in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. In chapter 18 of Acts. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, 
He shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there. Where's there? The temple. Where he was telling the Jews about Jesus. In the synagogue. The local synagogue. He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> said, I'm going next door. Then Crispus, this is cool, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his oikos, with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. Nothing broke loose in this city until Paul moved into the oikos and the ruler of the synagogue came over and got saved and his whole house. Couldn't do it in the synagogue, but he did it in the house. Interesting. We've read this. You've read this. I've read this. But we read it with a paradigm that says we've got to do this at the building. We have to do this at the church. We're going to baptize Doug today in a hot tub. Thank God. At McGeehan's house. At the Oikea of the Mogians, which is God's house, amen. And it's a lot warmer than the lake, brother. <laughs> amen. Although he was willing to do the lake. You got to know that. Doug said, if it's the lake, I'll do it. Ho, ho, ho. I said, we could do it in the lake, but um, Bob Thiessen or Pat's going to do the work of going in with you. <laughs> I'll just be on the beach praying. <laughs> Not that nobody has a coronary. Okay. Paul writes to Timothy and says the bishop, the person that desires the office of the bishop or the overseer or the leader of the church family must rule his own oikos well. It's a qualification of leadership. He's got to lead his own oikos well. Not just his, we've, we've interpreted that to be family members. You've got to have your families, in, and it states that there. Your kids got to be in order. Your life and your family's got to be in order before you say you can lead the church body. You got to have your family working before you can lead the family of God. He didn't say you got to have your house built right and your shutters on and your gutters working and your driveway plowed before you can come over to the building and run it. Am I making any sense? We're not called to run buildings. We're called to lead the church, the oikos of God, the family of God, the patria, the foule of God. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith, the oikos of faith. You know what this tells me? This tells me there's part of the oikos that isn't of faith. Did you see that there? Is that, can I read that correctly? As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith, those who are in the oikos of God. We ought to be really nice to each other. <laughs> But we're supposed to be nice to everybody, even that's in our oikos, that God has placed in our oikos that are outside of faith. That means you have to have some center friends. Ooh. I'll let Rob work on that one next week, maybe. But how do you lead anybody to Jesus if everybody in your oikos is already a Christian? And after a while of coming to the building, the salt gets inside the salt shaker, but we never get back out. And we turn it into a club meeting. And then we're more concerned about with what kind of chairs or carpet or is the heat on or plowed or, than we are about the lost. The oikos that God has put next to us 
that we have influence with. And he says, it's your responsibility to, as you're going into all the world, make disciples. Am I making some sense out of this? I have to tap this nail ever so gently until it goes in straight. Ephesians 2.19, just a couple of pages over. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the oikos of God, the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. The man who does not take care, Paul writes to Timothy, right? The man who does not provide for his household, his oikos, is worse than a man with no faith. That's what he said. A man that doesn't work and take care of his own household is worse than an infidel or a non-believer. God's concerned about families. Titus chapter 1, it says there are those who are going around teaching false doctrine. And what they do is that they, let's see if I get the right word here, Titus 1, 11. Ten, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole oikoses, whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Even in the early church, there was error and there was problem and there was uh, a negative effect on the body of Christ because there were those who had their own little thing they want to believe and teach. This time, the people of the circumcision did it to the church in all of Galatia. They said, you've got, you got to be circumcised too. You've got to believe in Jesus, but you need to be circumcised. Paul defended that in the book of Galatians. Here he's saying they sneak into oikoses. They don't try to get, even in our setting, it's hard to get a guy that's going to stand in front of a whole church building full of people, full of all of the assembled oikoses of God, and try and deceive all of them at once with a lie of doctrine. But if they can get into one house and peel it off to the side and say, well, you're, you're the house church. You're the whole church. You're the only church. We're the church. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to teach you my things. And they, can, they were hold, peeling off household units. Paul said, we've got to fight against that. See, a household church is not the whole church. The household needs to come under alignment to God's arrangement of government and organization in the body of Christ. You don't just become maverick out there and say, I'm a cell, I'm all by myself, I'm it, it's me, it's us four, no more, that kind of an attitude, and, and you get in trouble out there. So we align our oikoses together, right? Oikos, patria, fule, and a nation. It's assembled by God. It's not out of order. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6 says that God is a, a father to the fatherless. He is a husband to the widow. And he sets the solitary into families. See, even, even people that don't have their own family, when they come to Christ, are embraced into the oikos of God. That's why we arrange in lighthouses and cells. It's another motivation of ours is that everybody that's connected to us should be connected to an oikos, a family unit, a cell group. An assembly of people that can get together regularly, pray and care about one another, love one another, perform and live out the scriptures together. Really caring. Now, you know, you've probably been to a few cells and went, man, I don't like the people in that cell group. They're idiots. <laughs> now, those people are all on the road. I'm sorry. Uh, 
You say part of forming a, a lighthouse group is when you have to go through enough stress and tension and dissatisfaction with one another to get past it and say, well, I've got to love them anyway. Huh? You do. You know, they got these quirks. They talk too much. They snort when they laugh. They Whatever it is they do. You know, they drink all the coffee before I get there. They, they, they just care about the snacks. You know, so you know what? It's called forming. And after forming, after you form a, a lighthouse or a cell group, an oikos, then you go through what we call storming. That's where you bang into each other and don't like each other. And then you come to the norming part where you say, you know what? It's okay. I'm weird too. And they're weird. And we're weird together. But we're oikos. But we're family. So we're going to love each other and pray for each other. I'm not going to try and change them anymore. I'm just going to love them the way they are. And I'll ask them to love me the way I am. And then maybe we can reach some people for Jesus together. Okay. You've had plenty and I'm well over time. And if I keep banging on your nail, you'll be mad at me. Close with this. Is there a foundation for what we're talking about this morning? Or is it just a theory? Is it a theory from Scripture? Or is there living proof of what we're talking about? I would point immediately, unfortunately, to other nations of the world where the gospel is on fire and spreading like crazy. And you say, I ask, I'm asking questions to see if I can prove my thesis, my theory. Okay, look around at the nations who are really accomplishing the results of multiplying the kingdom of God in their, in their nations and in their cities. And I say, okay, do they have buildings? The answer sometimes is yes. But then the question becomes, which came first? Meeting places or buildings? Were the buildings built out of necessity or maybe out of a 1,700-year paradigm that's transferred from another nation? Or did the building get constructed and put together because they just had a bigger need? But what did we build the building first and then try and drive people into it? Or did the church expand at such a rate that they needed to do something to help it? It's a secondary process. It's not a primary process process. It's secondary. Here, we think we got to build it and then get them in. I think we already have it built. It's at your house. It's at your house. It's your house. It's my house. Starbucks. Back room at Vaughn's. Chamber of Commerce. Real estate offices. It just continues to go. The church meeting places are well stocked. We've got plenty. And we can't get them all into this one. But we can get them into our oikoses. The buildings really are secondary. And then the question becomes, how are people maturing? And if they're maturing in Christ, what regular and consistent methods are being practiced? And the regular and consistent practices in third world nations where the gospel is exploding... Is simply that people get together wherever they can. But they have a focused reason for being together. They don't just get together to eat crumpets and drink tea. Right? They don't get together just to eat. They get together to mature one another and challenge one another to grow in Christ. And they're praying fervently for their neighborhoods and their other Oikos members to come to Christ. And it's not about trying to get them into a building. It's trying to get them into the kingdom of God.
Okay, enough said. Father, I thank you. Thank you for driving this nail into my heart. Thank you for convincing my mind and giving me the opportunity to climb the tree and get a new paradigm. But Father, I pray that you'll do the miracle of teaching us supernaturally, that you will cause it to bear witness inside of us. When we're reading your word, that you'll put your finger on verses and passages and say, see here, see there. Look how I dealt with Israel. Look how I dealt with the New Testament church. Where do I want to take you? And Lord, give us the courage to be obedient to follow you. God, I pray that you will also foster in us a brokenness about our community, a heart that says people are going to hell without Christ a view that helps us to see how radically important this is for us to reach into our oikos this week and begin to pray for those we know who need Jesus. To pray for those inside of our family units who are not sold out to you in their dedication and to pray on their behalf and to intercede for them to come to know the greatness of living with you every day. Father, ignite us in Jesus' name to be the church. Amen.